Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman. Chapter 14 Hello, my father said, answering the phone in his usual enthusiastic greeting. Hi, Dad. Hey, guy, what's cooking? He said. Nothing much. Just got back from New York. New York? What's that all about? He said. Well, my friend Melvin had the opportunity to do some recording up there for a record label, and then Dave managed to get me a meeting with a major manager, so that's what I did. Cool, my father said. So how'd it go? It went really well, actually. I still have to figure out some details, but the manager sounds pretty excited to work with me. Great. What else is new? He asked. Well, I lost my job. He was less enthusiastic about that. Well, it's a long story, but basically there was this misunderstanding and they told me to quit or be fired. So I quit because the whole thing wasn't right. I never liked that job anyway, and I was wasting my life away. But you were making good money. What are you going to do now? He said, I've decided to move to New York. Okay, my father said calmly. And what do you plan on doing there? Well, eventually the music thing. Yes, but what will you do for money? He said. I'll get a stupid job like I've always had here. I can do nothing in Durham or New York City, but at least in New York I'll be closer to all the record labels and stuff. So when do you plan on leaving? He said. Probably in like December. And what will you do in the meantime? He said. Well, I'm going to get a job. I was thinking about staying with you until I moved. Okay. You know you're always welcome to stay here, but how do you plan on making all of this happen in three or four months? What about your current apartment? Do you have savings? Do you have a job lined up in New York? Do you have a place to live? He said. Well, no, but I'll figure all that out. There's just one thing. What? He said. I need help getting out of my lease. My father was always supportive as long as it didn't mean you were pursuing something that was irresponsible or couldn't support yourself doing it. He was successful in his field and I think the idea of one of his adult children not working hard to follow suit didn't sit well with him. I understood, but except David, none of my siblings chose traditional career paths. I figured he was used to it by now. He wasn't, and unfortunately, I needed his money. Because my parents and most of my siblings were from New York, they always had urged me to get out of Durham and head up north where I belong, at least culturally. Dad was okay with the idea of me moving, so after a few minutes of reprimanding my life choices, he agreed to get me out of my lease on my apartment, which I had just renewed for another year. I'd break my lease, live with him for three months or so, get a job, save some money, then go. My aunt had a studio apartment in Murray Hill that was vacant most of the time, and she agreed to let me crash temporarily. Rue's girlfriend's aunt agreed to let him stay in her big empty house in Brooklyn, along with her pet mice and collection of takeout utensils. We set a date of December 28, 2002. To earn money, I got a job at Nordstrom at South Point Mall selling women's shoes. I'm not sure how the idea came to me, but sales is sales, and there was no doubt that I could navigate retail. Unprepared to don a suit to work every day, I went to TJ Maxx and bought three cheap, ill-fitting suits that I could rotate each day. The job paid enough for me to save a little money and was meaningless enough to require zero brain power. One day in the food court, I ran into Fonte from Little Brother, who I'd become friendly with after various local performances and a freestyle battle I judged and he won. It turned out that he was working at Belk's selling Tommy Hilfiger. After catching a glimpse of each other in suits, we both laughed before discussing our shared frustrations. 
Little Brother had become somewhat known in the underground rap world with the help of their independent deal with ABB Records, but though they had released a few underground singles, they weren't yielding any financial returns. I was single with no kids and living at my dad's house, but Fonse had a child, a child's mother, and an apartment where they had to pay rent. Some days we would meet up for lunch at Great Steak Escape at the food court. On occasion, he reluctantly asked me to borrow $5 so we could afford a value meal. On days when our lunch breaks didn't line up, we'd walk to each other's jobs and bullshit until our managers would yell at us for wasting time. Sometimes I'd pretend to shop while he folded shirts and we'd make jokes about local rappers while giving each other comical reviews of the latest rap albums. Fonte was one of the most genuine people I'd ever met and I liked him a lot. He was intelligent, he was real, and he was, without question, the best rapper I knew personally. Eventually, Fonte stopped coming into work. His deal with ABB yielded an astonishing 30,000 copies sold with no major distribution, and he was leaving to give music his full attention. I didn't know what that meant, but I knew he had the talent to be successful, and in many ways, I envied him for trying. I knew one day that we'd see each other at the top and laugh at the fact that we both used to work at the mall. A few weeks later, I received a call from Ninth Wonder asking if I wanted to come through and listen to some beats. I told him I did, and Asim and I drove to his place in Raleigh. The first floor of his apartment was filled with members of his crew, the Justice League. I didn't know any of them well, but we exchanged handshakes before heading upstairs to the third bedroom where Ninth kept all of his equipment. Asim and I took seats on the floor while Ninth got right into playing beats that were somewhat reminiscent of A Tribe Called Quest. They were good, and I definitely heard a few that I wanted. I nodded my head while making mental notes as to which were my favorites. Every time Ninth took a break to tend to his child or grab a record, his young lackey Crisis would start to play some of his own beats. They were decent, mostly sounded like less polished Ninth Wonder beats. When Ninth would return, he'd scold Crisis for trying to get in on the listening session. Eventually, we came to a stopping point. Yo, seriously? I said. I think I heard at least like 15 I want to fuck with. Cool, he said. So yo, just pick one, I'll put it on a CD for you for just 125, and you can do whatever you want with it. One beat? I replied dumbfounded. What the fuck am I going to do with one beat? I said while laughing. That's how I'm doing it. 125 is cheap. Yeah, but what if I never write to it? Can't you just make me a CD with a bunch of beats and we'll see what happens? I got a vibe to beats before I write to them. No, man, Knight said in his deep southern accent. That ain't how I do it. Though he was making a name for himself, Ninth was a new jack in the local scene. I gave him the benefit of the doubt and assumed that he simply didn't know the protocol of working with artists outside of his crew. Ninth, listen, the way we all do it around here is that you make a beat CD, I vibe out to it and write whatever comes. After I pick something or some things that I like, we figure out a price, I pay you, we record it. If 125 is what you want, that's fine, but I'm not going to give you 125 to take one beat with me that I may never use. It doesn't make sense. I'm sorry, man, Ninth said politely, but that's how I got to do it, because I don't want cats stealing my beats. I understand your logic, but you can't worry about that. How you ever going to shop beats to real rappers if you don't hand out beat CDs? Plus, I'm about to move to New York, and I don't really have money like that right now. Once I get settled, I'll be ready to record, and I'll be able to pay you for whatever I use. I just can't do it, bruh, Ninth said with an uncomfortable smile. But if you want, you can come here every single day and write for free. That's what all the rest of the fellas do. <laughs> Ninth, I said laughing. I'm 24 years old, man. I'm not 16. I have a job and I don't have time to sit around and write raps all day. So listen, 
You got my number, Knight said. Call me when you get settled and we'll work it out. That was the end of the conversation, at least for a while. After three and a half months of effortlessly becoming Nordstrom's top women's shoe salesman, I broke the news to my manager that I was leaving. A few days prior, she had asked me to be floor manager and was visibly disappointed to learn of my departure. She begged me to stay and assured me that if I did, I'd have the opportunity to replace her when she moved back to Maryland. I told her that I appreciated it, but reminded her of my real passion. Two weeks later, Rue and I rented a minivan and packed up all of our things in black contractor bags. At 7 a.m. on Saturday, December 28th, the two of us set out on our journey to New York City, leaving behind my waving father and stepmother and Rue's teary-eyed girlfriend. It was rough, but we both knew that we were doing what we had to do for the love of music. The ride-up was fun, but long. We took a wrong exit and ended up in Philadelphia before rerouting ourselves in the right direction. We eventually arrived in Brooklyn, where we unloaded Rue's things before heading to Manhattan to unload mine. It was already dark outside and freezing. I was exhausted and discombobulated, and the weather made my arrival feel unsettling. We each got acclimated with our living conditions within a few days. Because my crash pad was in Manhattan, Rue spent almost every day at my aunt's studio and most nights on the couch. During the day, we'd watch TV, play the PlayStation that he brought, and order takeout. Every Saturday night, we'd run to get the Sunday New York Times to peruse the job section, and every few hours, we'd comb through Craigslist ads, hoping to find something we could do to earn money. Though my mind was focused on finding a retail job, Rue shot for the moon and only considered jobs at record labels or in related fields. His choices were sparse, so he found it incredibly difficult to achieve permanent employment. Eventually, I found a job listing in the New York Times for a shoe store set to open a few blocks from where I was staying. I interviewed at a neighborhood Starbucks and they hired me a few hours later. The job came in the 23rd hour. My free place to stay was about to expire, but I found an apartment in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn through a college friend. As soon as the ink was dry on the lease, I was on the next flight to Durham to load my old furniture into a U-Haul truck and head back to NYC alone with only an FM radio to keep me company. I began working and making a home for myself in Brooklyn, trying to reestablish some much-needed normalcy in my life. Rue wasn't so lucky. He found himself broke and only able to afford ramen noodles, cereal, and saltines. He eventually began sleeping on my couch permanently until finally, after nine months, he found a job at a company that sold energy to businesses. A few months later, he got an apartment in my building and began his transformation back into a normal human being. The whole transitional period seemed endless, but we were finally at a point where we could proceed with the plan. During this time, I tried whatever I could to make music. I connected with a few friends from Durham who had relocated to New York. With the help of people like my friend and fellow rhyme spitter Kamara, I could write and record songs even if it meant traveling to the Bronx, Newark, New Jersey, or some other undesirable faraway land. On several occasions, I'd find myself lost on public transportation, or I'd get off at the wrong stop and have to walk home through a snowstorm. But the adventures helped me to familiarize myself with the city and ultimately build character. I spoke to Dolo, who had told me that he had been chosen for the group that Ski and Franz put together. While Ski handled all of the production duties, Dolo, a female rapper, and a younger, more southern-sounding rapper held down the rhymes. They chose the name Now City because the initials were NC. I thought it sounded cool enough. 
The group worked hard in the studio for months and somehow managed to make the mishmash of rap styles work well enough to sound cohesive. Now City signed to Elektra Records and would soon make their way to New York to record songs for their upcoming major label debut. I wanted to see my friend, but I could only focus on the bigger picture. Dolo invited me to come hang out in the studio while they recorded, and I knew it would be another opportunity to get in Ski's face. I wasn't done with my mission to get him on my side, not by a long shot. He had managed to become the North Carolina music person du jour yet again, and Dolo knew that I wanted nothing more than to get signed. I accepted the invitation, and for the next three days, Rue and I hung out at the plush studio where Now City was recording. We watched TV, bullshitted on brown leather couches, and stood patiently behind the giant mixing boards while Ski, an engineer, and an inexperienced Electra A&R tried to figure out exactly how to mix each song. On the last day, I arrived alone and walked into a listening session that Ski was having with a young rapper named Trey Little. He was the cousin and protege of Eminem cohort Royce the 5'9". Word around the studio was that Trey was on the verge of being signed, strictly based on his affiliations with Royce, and Ski was eager to get beat placement on his project. After Ski played a few beats, I heard one in particular that grabbed me. The first few seconds sounded like sheer noise, but I was drawn to it and I couldn't pull my attention away. An electric guitar was being strummed rapidly and furiously with no method, no rhythm, and no purpose, but I was entranced. Eventually, the noise ended and the guitar sound morphed into a melody. It was repetitive and it was catchy. It was crazy, but it was awesome. The drums hit hard and the bass was powerful, but only when necessary. Doe, I whispered to Dolo, who was standing to my right. I gotta have that beat, man. Yo, ask E. I'm sure I'll let you have it. Come on, man. Ain't no way Ski's gonna fucking give me a beat, I said. No way in hell. Nah, man. He's been saying he wants to do some beats with some NC cats. You should holla at him. I don't know, man. The last time I was in the studio with him, he gave me some experimental bullshit with cowbells and that wooden instrument with the ridges and the stick, like we used to play in music class in elementary school. It was seriously the dumbest shit of all time, I said laughing. I'm telling you, Ski is all about looking out now. Just holla at him. Eventually, I managed to get some FaceTime with Ski and got right to the point. Ski, I gotta have that beat, yo. Which one? The last one you played, with the guitar. You like that one? Ski said, smiling. No, I love that one. I have to have it. Alright, so we can talk about it. Great, let's talk about it. No, Ski said, laughing. I mean later. Don't worry, I got you. I was skeptical, but I had faith. Now City left New York and headed out on a promotional tour across the country. I stayed in contact with Rock, who was my friend from my days of working in Urban Hype. He was a former correctional officer and licensed bodyguard. He was somehow involved with the Now City project due to his friendship with Ski. It probably didn't hurt that he was a 6'7", 375-pound mammoth of a man. I wasn't sure how much he could contribute, but who wouldn't want to have someone like that around? I used to rhyme for Rock when he'd come into the store to buy 6XL Averex jackets. He'd always dap me up with his giant paws and tell me that I was the shit. We had a friendship and I felt like he could be my end to Ski's world. I told him that I needed to have that beat that I heard. He told me to give it some time until there was a new batch of beats when Ski would care about that one less. I agreed and within a month, Rock made good on his promise. A FedEx that contained a silver CD with Ski's handwriting arrived at my job. It said, Ski Beat, Josh. By the time I knew it was on the way, I was so excited that I wrote an entire song to it in what felt like minutes. The beat was so infectious that I couldn't get it out of my head from the first time I had heard it. 
I had yet to record a song by myself since I had moved to New York, and this was the perfect song to make my presence felt. Now, I just needed somewhere to do it. My co-worker Caroline introduced me to her friend Big Phil, who used to be the road manager for Sporty Thieves, a group that was once signed to Ski's Rock-A-Block Records. He too was a large man at 6'4", 300 pounds. He was Barbadian, spoke with a slight accent, and looked intimidating. After hearing my music, Phil took an interest in me and asked if I'd be interested in having him as a manager. I didn't know him enough to trust him, but I thought that his connections could help me get signed. I told him that we could discuss it and asked if in the meantime he knew of a studio where I could record. He suggested that I come up to Yonkers to his man Doob studio. He was one third of the Sporty Thieves and as a fan of their music, I was excited to meet him. It had been a while since they had their moment, but even someone who used to be a famous rapper was at least a step closer to where I wanted to be. I borrowed Caroline's car and Phil gave me directions to his house in the Bronx, directions that included the repeated usage of the phrase, right past the booty spot. He squeezed into the front seat and we drove up to YO to record. I'd never been to Yonkers before, but I remember thinking about DMX and how his persona matched the neighborhood. When we got out of the car, I felt uneasy. I had always thought of Westchester County as affluent, yet somehow I was in the hood, but there was no turning back now. We walked into the ground floor level of an old brownstone which looked like a crack den. It was dark, lifeless, messy, and the air was stale. When we walked through the second door, I saw Dube sitting there looking exactly like I remembered him from TV, plus 75 or so pounds. Dubes, this is my man Josh, aka what's his name? Phil said, introducing me in his deep Barbadian accent. Dube stuck out his hand and gave me dap, only looking at me briefly to acknowledge my presence, but never uttering a word. As Phil spoke to him cheerfully, Dubes listened to him with a look of depression on his face and seemed to concentrate more on the ever-growing ash on his Newport cigarette than anything Phil was saying. Eventually, Phil instructed me to hand over the goods. I gave Dubes the CD case that contained the instrumental of my future hit, waiting for him to notice what the writing said. I felt it would act as common ground. As he opened the clear plastic case silently, he removed the CD and I could see him concentrating on the writing. Skeeby, he muttered dispassionately before staring at it for the next 10 or so seconds. He placed the disc into the CD drive in his computer and turned the volume up. At this point, I'd only heard him say two words and had yet to make any real eye contact with him. As we sat in silence, the beat blasted and the bass rattled the giant speakers in the corner of the room, as well as the empty 40-ounce beer bottles that sat atop them. Dubes just sat there. After two and a half minutes, he faded the volume down nearly all the way, and then he spoke to me. Yodiski, he said. Yeah, I quickly responded, while wide-eyed and eager to make a connection with them. Rockablocksky, he asked me again. Yup, I said confidently. Yo, that dude fucked my life up, man. What could I say? I glanced back at Rue, whose face illustrated the same perplexity as mine. I sat there silently for a few minutes while the beat played out, wondering if this session was even going to happen. My feeble attempts at playing Connect the Musical Dots had only resulted in the feeling like I was somehow on the wrong team. Well, finally, Dubes broke his silence once again and asked me if I was ready. He led me into a makeshift recording booth in the next room. I got focused on the task at hand, and while I recorded my verses, Dubes engineered the session like a professional. I needed a female vocal for the chorus, so Dubes went upstairs and came back with someone who resembled the character Precious from the movie of the same name. Her voice worked perfectly, and she sing-wrapped my chorus exactly as I had written it. 
And with that, I could hear my vision becoming a reality. After a few hours of recording, I sat back down on the couch while Dubes mixed the track, making it good enough for me to leave with a copy. Without me ever muttering the name Ski again, Dubes began telling me how Ski had allegedly jerked he and his partners Marlon and Kurt out of hundreds of thousands of dollars while they were signed to his label. He claimed that Ski had him sign a contract saying that he was going to be writing and producing for Ski's solo album so the label would release the advance money to Ski himself. Supposedly, he told Dubes that he'd pay him for the writing and producing even though he had no real plans of ever releasing a solo album. It seemed shady, but so did almost everything I had heard about the music business. He told me that Ski was signing artists left and right and getting recording advances for their albums but never actually recording any songs. I didn't know whether or not that was just his perception of the situation, but I also didn't doubt it. And not because I didn't genuinely like Ski, I just knew that it was a dirty industry. Ski wasn't as in demand as he was a few years prior, so the stories the dupes told me helped to explain the Range Rover, the house, and the state-of-the-art studio in the basement. Ski was my man, and I considered that he had possibly jerked some of his artists, I just never thought I'd meet one. I wound up going to Dube's place a few more times and even recorded a song to one of his beats, which he bequeathed to me gratis. In the process, we became friends. Not the type who speak on the phone or hang out on weekends, but the kind who bonded over hip-hop music and respect for lyricism. I liked Dube's, and I was glad that he seemed to like me as a person and as an artist. I respected his lyrical prowess, and I took in his positive opinion of me like nutrition. Everything I recorded with Dubes lacked the professional quality I required, but I learned something very important from dealing with him. Dubes was an example of something I'd never really considered, life after rap. He was broke, maybe an alcoholic, he looked unhealthy, he seemed miserable, and most of his life was consumed by his baby's mother's child support suit against him. It was an extreme case, but it was a reality that stuck with me. I only hoped that I wouldn't end up like Big Dubes. <laughs>